Hello, BYU, and welcome back to Open Up BYU. My name is Hector Martinez. I'm a senior here at BYU studying communications, and welcome to our podcast. We made this podcast to start the difficult conversations around diversity and inclusion of ethnic minorities here on campus. We want to open up a discussion that will allow all of us to learn a little more and grow more as a community. Today, here with us, we have Professor Rue from the Department of Sociology talking a little bit about respect and what that really means for us here on this campus. Respect between students, respect between faculty and students, or respect in general. Sure. My name is Professor Jacob Rue. I'm in the Department of Sociology. I've been at BYU since 2012. I teach courses about race, and ethnicity, and immigration. I'm originally from the city of Chicago, raised on the south side of Chicago, and I've lived in Guatemala, where I serve my mission, in Harlem, New York, and Princeton, New Jersey, and also here in Provo, of course. That's awesome. What kind of inspired you then to want to go into teaching this? Is it where you have been living, or is it something specific that happened in your life? I'd say it's a few specific people. My own father was branch president and bishop when our, our branch became a ward when we had over 400 people join, and almost all of them were African-American. So many of my leaders, my first nursery leader was Kathy Stokes, who's a famous black Mormon. A lot of my teachers at school were black, my coaches. Additionally, I've had experiences working with the immigrant community here in the U.S. I was uh, in a Spanish branch presidency for three years. About half of the people in the congregation were undocumented immigrants from many different countries. And I've also been inspired by other researchers, academics, uh, lawyers, civil rights leaders, many people in American history who are white, Latino, Asian, Native American, who've inspired me to do something that includes others and helps make our society more equal and more just. How have your experiences in your career, how has mm-hmm. that shaped kind of your views on diversity now as like a you know, social mm-hmm. um, issue? Yeah, there are three things I do in my career right now. So I teach in the classroom. So I've had a lot of experience with uh, multiracial students, uh, minority students. Um, I have many colleagues who are faculty of color as well. So that has been influential for me to see what types of dilemmas that other people experience that maybe I haven't experienced myself. So that's helped me empathize, kind of walk a mile in their shoes. People have written essays. They've uh, performed you know, pieces of music, they've, you know, made art, they've written essays and papers that have helped me understand that better. Another thing that I do is I work on civil rights cases primarily based on the Fair Housing Act of 1968. So housing discrimination cases, worked on multiple cases that have settled and there's been justice for the victims when they've been discriminated against by banks and other institutions. So that's definitely influenced me and I've met quite a few people who uh, have been good examples. Then the other thing I do is, you know, research. And, of course, with research uh, and data, you have to kind of put your, your presumptions to the test. Yeah. You have to test your hypotheses. Sometimes there are surprises. I'm doing some new research on Latinos in Florida that's yielding some new surprises that's interesting. So I'm really lucky in the line of work that I have. I have tenure now at BYU, and I get paid to kind of live the exam in life and learn the rest of my life. And I think part of learning, we talk a lot in our LDS culture about the restoration, how it brings us technology and medicine. I think part of that, too, is just thinking a lot more deeply about how do we find solutions to divisions such as racism. There's, of course, other forms of division in terms of gender, sexuality, nationality, religion. But in terms of race and ethnicity, that's one thing where I think 
People of many faiths have been inspired to do amazing things, not just the famous people we know like Rosa Parks and Martin Luther King, but many others. And thinking more deeply, what should we do, right? We all have a different role. Some of us are parents, some of us are school board members, some of us are leaders in our church, some of us are students, some of us are professors. Uh, What can we do to make the world better for the next generation? So when our kids and grandkids look back, they say, hey, man, were were you part of the problem or did you do nothing? Did you just stand by or were you at least trying to be part of the solution? Right. I think something that really stuck out to me that you were talking about was being empathetic and also kind of going along the lines of like our religion and what kind of what Jesus Christ taught us, you know, um, how do you think that we as people can be more empathetic or learn to be more empathetic? I'd say a couple of things. I mean, Brian Stevenson, when he came here to visit and give the historic forum address last October 2018, said there's power in proximity, that when we're proximate, that's the first step. Now, it's not it's the first step. We're not all the way there, right? So people who go on study abroad or serve a mission, right, sometimes you're accepted by another community that's different than yours, and that helps you become proximate. But another thing we have to re-examine is, you know, the schools that we grow up in, where we worship, where we work. All these institutions in the U.S. are highly racially segregated. So we have to have more meaningful interracial contact. And we can talk more about that in follow-up questions, what that looks like. That's definitely a first step. I agree that if, you know, what social psychology teaches, if I tell you about 5,000 people that starve to death, you will not care as much as if, a, if you know a story of one person who starved to death. You know that person personally and deeply, right? That's definitely true. There's something about human connection and emotion that's, you know, outside of my discipline. But I think that those experiences can overcome some of the ignorance that we might have and then some of the willful ignorance that others might have where they won't respond to facts and data. I think empathy and human connection are absolutely essential and like you say, whether it's being Christian or being American, we can use a lot of um, facets of our identity to, to relate to another person and build on that foundation. You're a professor. I guess the proximity there, you know, because you have students of different backgrounds in your classes. Yeah, we do. When you see diverse student, like how do you feel about their performance in your classroom? It's a great question because people can overcorrect, overcompensate, or make assumptions even when they're well-intentioned. So for me, being in my classes, it's about twice the rate of diversity, sometimes three times at BYU. Wow. Uh, so it's about one-third of the students on average, up to 50%, 60% minority. Okay. So that makes for a very different experience. So let me, let me tell you a couple of things and answer your question. First of all, if you have a classroom with seven Native American students, they're going to be from different tribes right. and peoples, and they're going to have different viewpoints and experiences on and off the reservation, for example, different degrees of multiraciality, right, uh, connection. You have many students, one student who everybody thought was white, was part of a tribe in California whose language was almost lost. Fewer than 100 people spoke it, right? She was very committed to that identity. So definitely with every student comes a story, right? And you have right. to know what is their story, right? Uh, you can't assume, you know, <laughs> this one Latino student who went to look for housing and I said, oh, yeah, just keep going, keep going back. And he found himself outside, and he was with all these construction workers, and they're all speaking Spanish. <laughs> and this guy didn't know any Spanish, really. Right. <laughs> so the next time he went, he had to wear a BYU tie with all the corny logos on it and stuff, you know, to reassure folks. So we can't make assumptions. Uh, that's definitely for sure. Now, I think what happens that's special when you have a more diverse classroom is that a community grows. Some of the white students that are committed to meaningful integration really find a home as well and realize there's other folks that agree with them. People are able to express 
their true identity. We're able to get to know each other on a deeper level, right, when we don't always have one person speaking on behalf of their entire race, right, when there's at least two or three or four or five or, like I said, seven or ten or more. I taught a class with ten black students last semester, which was very different uh, and amazing. That really opens it up. Another thing that's really important is that if I'm a white male, right, it's important that white people talk to other white people about race, that we don't put all the burden on people of color to educate white people. Right. But it's also important that I bring in guest speakers, uh, either from other universities, uh, colleagues. I have a colleague who's African-American, and that they see that there are people of color in positions of authority who are experts on the subject, yeah. you know, X, Y, Z. And so they see themselves in that person. Uh, my mother is a professor and a dean, and she's had so many female students say, wow, you know, I never would have considered graduate school had I not had you as a professor. Right. Because you not only taught the subject matter, but you told some stories, you talked about your path, what that was, and I could see myself in you. Whereas going into the class, I'm like, you know, some of them were thinking, I'm not, this is not an option for me. So that's really, really important. Uh, so diversity is important. But it is only a precondition or the ingredient for kind of meaningful integration and reconciliation. Uh, we've got to take that next step where we have meaningful interaction. That's obviously the thing that uh, is a challenge for every institution in the United States, uh, whether it's religion or the military or sports teams. Other universities certainly have the same challenge, uh, many of them being historically white colleges and universities just like BYU. So that's that's really, really important, though, that we get beyond tokenism, pioneers, people being the only one mm -hmm. in the room, because that's very lonely, isolating, uh, has mental health effects, and so on and so forth. So we've got to get uh, farther along in the process, in my view. Yeah, and I think that's a great point, kind of creating a community within a classroom. I had just started, I think, last semester, kind of hanging out more with groups of like other Hispanics, other African-American students, other Asian students that I came across in my program that I had no idea even existed. And I feel like definitely like in a classroom, I just felt very isolated all the time. When you can have a community in a classroom, kind of makes you more excited to go to that class as well. You know, it kind of gives you this motivation of, oh, this I, I like this class. I feel comfortable here. Other people look like me in here. And there's two challenges, just to follow up on that real briefly. There's the kind of programming. There's the extracurricular. There's the community and clubs. Where that's essential because people yeah. need a safe space. They need a place to just breathe, be themselves. And then there's also what we're kind of catching up on now is uh, a place in the curriculum where we see the contributions of people of color, where we learn about their the theories, the evidence that they have brought to their disciplines. So there are new classes on immigration and history and sociology. There's a new class on race and gender and political science. Mm -hmm. So there's three new courses just starting this next year. Yeah. that are really good, uh, two of them taught by people with experience from other cultures and, and perspectives. They're going to be excellent. So we have to have both the substantive curriculum as well as the, the kind of people power in the community. Yeah, I love that. I, I think the School of Communications is also getting a class, so mm -hmm. starting in the fall. But yeah, going back, using recent events, new classes, and the white students that you do have in your class, how do you think all that affects this campus, like the difference between BYU and other universities and racism how like have you seen that or do you think that's a legitimate thing that's going on on this campus oh certainly yeah racism is happening on all campuses and um, we recently had a guest come to uh, meet with our students uh, um, a prominent black professor from another institution and and his assessment after meeting with many different individuals at different levels 
student leaders, uh, professors, mental health counselors, and others, was that our, our case was really no different. The only thing that was a little bit different was that some white students have inherited, right? We inherit money, we inherit genes, we inherit our neighborhoods, uh, things that we don't always earn, good and bad. Right. Many white students have inherited a twisted doctrine that uh, black people are inferior because of past justifications of the priesthood restriction. Right. Uh, And that's unfortunate because it sometimes infects infects them, we could say, in ways they're not aware of. I've known, you know, black students that I've had TAs and writing fellows, amazing students, who have grown up here in Utah taking honors and AP classes. And, you know, right along with them, their white peers treated them equal the whole time right. to their credit. And then when they got into BYU, everybody turned around and said, well, you only got in because you were black. Right, right. And the person is incredulous. They're saying, well, I can't believe this. We've grown up going to church together. You've seen me take the AP and the honors classes, right? Yeah. So people still are, even though, to their credit, people do everything they can to treat people as equals, they're still influenced by a racist society and racist beliefs. Right. Uh, we know that BYU admissions are race-blind. They're holistic. You don't get in just because of your test score, or just because you went to seminary, or just because you did 10 extracurriculars. Uh, they consider all factors. And so it's really unfortunate when there's episodes like that because those episodes of people who are black or brown being seen as somehow diluting the campus, not being worthy enough, are really racist assumptions that people make. And I've, you know, never found a black or brown student who said, yeah, no, I've never heard of that, right? They've all (laughs) encountered some degree of that. Now, I think we are making progress in a lot of ways by Mm -hmm. being more diverse, uh, but sometimes there are growing pains where, you know, you have increased diversity and people have to get accustomed to that. But I think there's a lot of people who have good intentions who come from a position of ignorance, maybe come from a more racially isolated community, right? We tend to think of an all-black ghetto as being segregated, but, you know, an all-white place, you know, around Lone Peak High School is also a product of racial segregation, right? That's not normal. Provo High School is 50-50, half-white, half-non-white, just like the U.S. population, U.S. high school population. So we have to interrogate that more deeply and think about that. But to sum up, in terms of answering your question, there are definitely incidents of racism at BYU, you know, somebody wore a blackface, you know, last last right. uh, last year, and wasn't aware of the historical significance of that with Jim Crow and and the flattening of black people into one stereotype. And at the same time, we have students who not only attend into the Spider Verse film, right. but they actually can analyze and understand how, hey, this guy is, you know, he's black, he's Puerto Rican, you know, he's right, you know, Spanish and English, he's urban, and this film, you know, being urban is seen as being just as American, right? It doesn't have to be suburban. Uh, lots of dimensions to that film that are really exciting that open up a lot of dimensions, like you were talking about earlier, within minority identity. There's a lot of dimensions within that identity. There's a difference between somebody who's a South American student from Chile than somebody who is from West Valley and is a third-generation Latino-American and majority-minority city, right? So all those things are are important. But, you know, there's got to be some way. I know that in the present time, they are redesigning all of general education at BYU. So they're redoing GE for the first time since the 1970s, right? They've had a lot of ad hoc additions. You add this here, add this there. And I know that a big priority for the new GE is to have a required course or set of courses, more likely, around diversity and community, diversity and society or diversity inclusion. In other words, you can't have diversity all by itself because for too many white folks, that means, oh, once we hit a quota, we're good, you know? 
we can all go home. You know, once we, you know, yeah, LDS here in, in America is, you know, 2% African-American, maybe 3%, right? One to three. Mm-hmm. So some people say, well, once we have 1,000 black students, we're good. But from the minority perspective, that's, that's, that's uh, setting limits. That's saying, okay, once we hit a quota now, we don't admit it anymore, right? So diversity alone is not enough. So I hope that in the future, as we have diversity inclusion or diversity in community, we get that anchored to a gospel context, such as the fact that, you know, Zion will be incredibly multiracial and multiethnic, right? I mean, if the gospel is supposed to go to the world, then the the world is going to be reflected in the people who believe in the gospel, right? It's like, come on now, right? That's just a logical syllogism. Um, But a lot of people aren't ready for that, and not because they're maliciously, have a malicious intent, right? They want to harm anybody else, but they've been like I was talking about earlier, infected by a kind of racist superstructure or system we exist in. So I hope that going forward we'll have a more across-the-board foundation so that all students, when we use a term like racism or unearned privilege, like white privilege, that we can be more on the same page and make progress the way Brian Stevenson invited us to do. And the way he always said it's we, right? He never said it's you or them. He always said we the entire talk. So that's really, really important. Well, I think two two thoughts and two questions have come up into my head after... All that. But just like going back a little bit, I love the use of, of movies. Movies are really trying to teach us as well, along with the Spider-Verse. The one before that, I think, was Black Panther. And I think Black Panther taught something completely beautiful when the congressman says, well, what can your country teach me? And then cuts. It's like, well, th- yeah, that's that's it. That's That's the main thing. We can all teach each other everything. We don't have to own something. This type of music is mine. This sport is mine. It's a white sport. It's black music. It's Hispanic colors. It's something that we're here to share and for all the community to like learn from it because we're learning from each other. And I think that was that's so beautiful. Like especially growing up in New York, I'm I know so many half Puerto Rican, half black friends that I have or half Dominican, half Trinidadian. You know, you have famous people now, Cardi B. She's mm-hmm. half Dominican and half black. She's out there representing a lot of what ethnic minorities need, seeing, oh, she's a strong, like Dominican black woman. We don't see that a lot. And I think that's why I chose my major. Yes, advertising, public relations, as journalism is all fun. But to me, it's mostly like media and what media can do on a behavioral standpoint and what we can see and what we consume and how that actually affects us. How can we help the students understand, no, 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 that is racist. That's like a microaggression you're having right now. Mm-hmm. And that's that's not okay. We're not asking for special treatment. We're just asking that you realize that's not okay. Yeah, there's a theory in sociology called colorblind racism that was developed in the 1990s by the current president of the American Sociological Association. It'll be no surprise to you that he's a black Puerto Rican man, Eduardo Bonilla Silva at Duke University, uh, who pioneered this theory. And yes, there can be racism without racists. In other words, racism, even if people said things that were polite and there was no hateful words or rhetoric, there would still be a wealth gap of 10 to 1 between whites and blacks, right? And eight to one between whites and Latinos, right? There would be a gap in opportunities, schools, housing, immigrant deportations, mass incarceration, on and on down the line, right? So we have to recognize that and understand that when we perpetuate kind of a raceless, colorblind, we can't talk about race, or if I talk about race, somehow I'm being racist, right? If we perpetuate that, we can never address the problem, right? We can never address the problem. And if you look at Rwanda... South Africa, Germany, you know, lots of societies, Singapore, elsewhere, they have a lot of things more out in the open. They're saying, you know, we know that there's a problem, and we actually agree there's a problem. 
We have truth and reconciliation commissions, you know, Germany, Rwanda, and South Africa. Uh, they're a lot farther down the road, even though they're not perfect, right? Here we have a disagreement even about what the problem is, which is a really, really tough, tough, tough issue. You know, I think if we learn the best social science evidence, like I said, you can bring in political science, history, economics, sociology, when it comes to race, racism, if we can just get on the same page about what we mean, that's a big first step. And I've seen that happen in my classes, that students of all races, when we measure them in a pre and post survey, right, it's not just stories or testimonials, that they tend to converge on the meaning of the terms, on a set of attitudes and so forth, uh, that really helps them uh, make progress. It doesn't mean that people lose their individuality. Quite the contrary, everybody discovers that they are individuals, which is really, really important. One thing that happens a lot in our conversation, that just based on what you said earlier, mm-hmm. is uh, especially with the priesthood restriction, is that things can get misunderstood as just a black-white paradigm. And then when you look in the Western United States, including Utah, you know, the biggest minority groups tend to be Latino Americans and Native Americans and Asian Americans in California, you know, triple the size of black Californians. Uh, the other groups feel left out and they become a race in a kind of weird form of racism of just not even addressing their concerns. That's really interesting. There was a Dominican immigrant just wrote about in an essay named Fading Santana in North Charleston, South Carolina. There have been over two dozen high profile cases of police brutality that have often been captured on video. And so only two cases has an officer been sentenced to prison time. And this was the only case where he was sentenced to more than 10 years. And Santana was an immigrant who took the video of Walter Scott being shot in the back as he ran away, and he was clearly innocent. And the interesting thing about this Dominican immigrant is that he spent two days really torn up inside whether he should share the video or delete it. He's somebody who's neither black nor white, but he's kind of seen as being more black. He doesn't want to take sides in the white-black thing. He came out and said, you know, I'm not against police officers. He He has a lot of other police officers he knows that are great. But what he did, he was a true American hero. And releasing that video was very instrumental to there being justice in that case. So many of those who feel left out in this black-white paradigm actually have a really big role to play in advancing justice. And I've seen that here at BYU. Students who are Asian-American, Native American, uh, Middle Eastern students even, Latino-American, where they've said, you know, I want to be somebody who is taken in good faith as a connector I had a student from Heber that was Mexican-American. She hang out with a white crowd and with a Hispanic crowd, and she was bilingual and bicultural. Right. She was a great bridge, you know, and she's doing great things now. had an Asian-American friend who said, you know, you know, black people trust me more than white people. White people trust me more than black people, right? So right. I've got to use that advantage and kind of be in the racial middle. So we talk a lot about uh, four different theories of what the racial structure of the U.S. is today and what what the role for everybody is, right? Because everybody plays a role. We're all in this together, right? The old yeah. you know, adage that we came in different, different ships, but we're all in the same boat now. I think that's a very interesting thing to take as well as I am Mexican-American. Is like we do all have a, this role to play. I think just kind of an internal view as well is just, yeah, a lot of my friends do say, oh, Hector, you're not. But you're not really Mexican. You're like really white. And I'm like, uh, I don't really know what that means. Like, I spoke Spanish in the house. Like, I eat, like, my mom does not speak English to me. Like, I'm, I feel pretty Mexican. And at the, but at the same time, I have Hispanic friends who love talking in Spanish with me. They love, we all get together. It's like, it's, we're really loud. We laugh really loudly. And, like, I feel at home. But there's this dynamic on the inside that you feel, like, I'm never American enough for mm-hmm. Americans, but I'm never Hispanic enough for Hispanics either. Somehow there is this, 
am I really Hispanic enough? Like, I, I grew up here, so, I mean, I have a different perspective. But also, like, I don't look, you know, like everyone else. So yeah. it's, like, it's like this hard thing where playing this role mm-hmm. is important, but at the same time, I feel like we shouldn't have to always play this role. I feel like mm-hmm. sometimes people should just get it. Like, mm-hmm. hey, like, that's wrong. Like, why, why, why can't you process that in your head? As a joke, build the wall or, like, saying things like, oh, that Mexican girl is like, how do you know she's Mexican? Like, how do you know she's not Honduran? How do you know she's not Guatemalan or like, Ecuadorian or something? We don't all like being lumped together as the same thing. I just think it gets really tedious. For BYU, you know, I feel like we should be able to be brothers and sisters, you know, the way the church teaches us. And I feel like it's just, just that loss of disconnect. Absolutely. And the forever foreigner stereotype, you know, Asian Americans, Latino Americans, even black Americans have to face this. It's, a, it's an issue. For example, our church in the 1980s began to have many different images of, of, of black members of the church. But they were always in traditional kente cloth or African dress. Right. And that reinforced the idea that black people are not American. They are, they are foreign, that they are outsiders, right? It's okay to have both sides, right? Both the foreign and the domestic. But if you only have the foreign, you reinforce that, that image. Congressman David Wu entered a federal building and used his congressional ID, and they, he was not allowed to enter. He yeah. said it wasn't good enough. A congressional ID, right? <laughs> only held yeah. by 435, 535 people. Then right after him, an Italian-American member of Congress walked right in with this ID with no problems, right? Yeah. So people who are uh, Asian-American, Latino-American, Black-American are seen as foreigners, and that's a big issue they have to face. You layer that on the top of our LDS-based faith being historically in the inter- Intermountain West, kind of Idaho to Arizona Mormon corridor, and a lot of people are seen as outsiders, right? Oh, you must be new. You must have just joined the church, you know, or, or right. you must be on athletic scholarship or what have you. You know, it's 2019, right? Okay, so maybe in 1976 you say that, like, I, I'll, give you, I'll give you a pass, right? Yeah. Uh, but it's 2019. We've got third, fourth generation black members here, multi-generational LDS whose parents are return missionaries, whose parents are mission presidents themselves, who are seen as outsiders. And so there's a dimension to that that's very, very harmful. Now, I do think for the white students who come from Riverside or, you know, Las Vegas, uh, you know, parts of Phoenix— They've had enough exposure, even, even maybe Queens and Manhattan, they've had enough exposure to different diversity within the Latino experience that they don't make that connection always. But, you know, there are real stereotypes out there about all Latinos being Mexican, all being illegal, yeah. right? Uh, and we have to realize that has an effect on who we are. Today, two out of three Latinos are U.S.-born citizens. You know, U.S. born, born here in the U.S. Two out of three. For sure. But going back, there was an article that you were quoted on. Respect isn't just about not offending. It's also being proactive about how we honor others. I love that. And I would love just like to spend a little bit more time just talking about respect. Also inclined to defend a little bit the white students on BYU because I feel sometimes we are shoving a lot of things down their throat. Especially in 2019 now where it's like, hey, you can't say anything about racial minorities or sexuality, or gender now. If you're a traditional white person, you're going to be attacked a lot. Or you may feel attacked. And I, and I just say this in the aspect of a lot of the white friends that I do have sometimes do talk to me about this. So how can we create just that respect of, like, not wanting to offend anyone, like, hey, you have to change because you're wrong, but how do we create a respect of, like, I respect your views, I validate your views, but I'm not, like, 
completely there. It, it all goes back to respect. Uh, fundamentally, at the end of the day, if you respect someone, then you will use the terms that they ask you to use. It's about respect. We have a, a peak here that has been formerly called Squaw Peak that, to his credit, the past mayor, outgoing mayor John Curtis, formed a commission, very diverse, with Native people, black people, white people, to rename that peak because that's a gendered epithet you know, against Native American women, the use of the term squaw. So that's, that's, that's major progress, right? But at the end of the day, like you say, certain terms, the connotations get too heavy and they just outweigh the denotation. Hmm. And politically correct is one of those where we just don't even use that word anymore. You know, right. If I'm married to someone and they ask me, you know, my wife says, don't ever say, oh my gosh. Mm-hmm. You know, so I had to stop saying that. Right. Because she says it sounds like, oh, my G-O-D. Okay. Like, but it doesn't sound like it to me. Yeah. But you ask me and I respect what you say. So I'll never say that again. And I never did. Right. So it's about respect. And, and that's just a trite example. But it's so, so vital if I'm using the term black American where I'm from. You know, Jake, you're white. So we get to be just black. You know, if you were European hyphen this American, some long thing, then we start taking longer titles. But we're just black. You're just white. Mm-hmm. Now, if I use black American, I ask my students, what would you like to be called? Would you like to be called African-American? Then I'll use that term. Right. I'll, I'll say that's fine. If somebody wants to be Native peoples, Native Americans, American Indian, mm-hmm. indigenous. Right. I will I will meet them where they are as a matter of respect, which is so, so important. I think what, I think there's good, better, best. Right. Good is that we have more diversity and it's right. not an all white space or an all male space. You know, I also went to Princeton, which was you know all male until the 1970s. Yeah, that's good. Better is that we have equal treatment on an individual basis. Right. Best is that we have internalized a social norm that says that, you know what, racism against any marginalized person is wrong and is worse than being called a racist, right? Mm -hmm. Because right now we have too many white folks in the U.S. who, for them, being accused of something racist for them is worse than the actual racist. And so even myself, I've had people give me input and feedback, right? I don't think I've been called a racist. I can't recall that ever happening. But I've had people of color complain to me and, and give me feedback. And I have to be respectful and bigger than myself. I can't be so egocentric that it's always about me because they're in a place of pain, right? And I'm not the center of the universe here, right? Uh, none of us are. And when we can get to that point and internalize respect, and like you say, we have to avoid some of these terms you know, like political correctness, illegal immigrant, terms that just are too explosive. Go back to what is the gospel foundation? What's the true principle there, right? right. The principle is respect. All those things, we have to understand the dynamics of it's not okay for the majority to use the word the minority is using, right? It's a different context because they're using it in response to a power dynamic and oppression. I think respect needs to exist in all communities in the aspect of sometimes even between racial minorities, there's like small disrespect here and there. Mm -hmm. And What, you don't speak Spanish? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Or you're only half Asian, you're not full, yeah. Yeah, And, and I think that's something huge that even we can work on. That's the important thing about respect is like, we're all here for each other. We all belong to this community. Listen to me, I'll listen to you, and we'll meet halfway. Going on to our final question, how can the majority of students here at BYU be better allies? What can we do realistically? I think the first thing comes in the knowledge base, right? Uh, we believe that knowledge is one of the few things that will go with us in the afterlife, intelligence, right, as the glory of God. So I mentioned to you about a dozen courses. I could give you a list of 12 to 15 classes, mm-hmm. including some of the new ones that everybody should take. And they're across disciplines. A lot of them are GE credit. Most have no prerequisites. I think that knowledge base has to be there, the awareness. And you know what? People, it's a radical idea. 
can also educate themselves without getting points or a grade or a job or money, right? Knowledge can be its own reward. And I think by spending time in these spaces where whites are not the default majority are really important. Going to some of the club activities, uh, going to some of the other events, especially some of the lectures and seminars that are given, right? Especially there are a lot of people, visitors who are people of color who come to campus all the time, uh, learning from them or other ways to enrich uh, oneself. And then making that commitment that we went back to the beginning of the interview that both of uh, you and I have had, we call the sociological imagination, where you see how your biography intersects with history. And having white people learn about white people who have fought for civil rights, seeing role models, and then also saying, how am I going to map on the struggle for racial equality onto my own values? How does my value system speak to this? Does it speak to it? Is it just nine boxes on cable TV yelling at each other? Is it just politics? Is it just this? No, it actually goes back to our core values. And you can look at the church's statements against white supremacy, for example, in 2017, and say, how does that map onto it? And that will be a much more lasting transformation. You know, because if it's just for an assignment or a club or even a podcast or whatever, you know, that that's not always as lasting. But if you can map it onto your value system and kind of imprint it on your on your soul or your spirit, that will last much, much longer. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for coming on again with us and for sharing those insights. We appreciate it so much, especially just because you were recommended from one of our students here at the School of Communications. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Multiple students yeah. have, have you know, said Lauren, that she's... so much. And yeah, um, you're welcome. Hope to see you guys in the classroom sometime. Thank you, Professor Roo, for those insightful comments that we were able to share together here. Now, BYU, we encourage you to also open up about issues regarding diversity, inclusion on campus. DM our Instagram page, Open Up BYU. If you haven't already followed us, give us a follow. And we would love to hear your comments, your questions, and how we can better this podcast. We're also available on Spotify and iTunes. They can give us a listen. And please use our hashtag, hashtag OpenUpBYU. Also, there's a book called Diverse Voices, Profiles and Leadership that will allow you to grow more in this knowledge-based environment that we are trying to create here for, for our students and for this major. Pre-com students and com students, we'd love to hear from you guys. We'd love to see what you guys have to offer this great field and what this great field has to offer for you. And thank you. Thank you.